Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. For each program, we choose a new book that's especially interesting, and we chat with the author of that book. For this program, I had the pleasure of speaking with Martin Wen about his great new book, Sufi Master and Quran Scholar, Abu Qasim al-Kushiri and Al-Taif al-Isharat, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2012. The famous Abu Qasim al-Kushiri is well known as one of the most influential figures in the formative period of Sufism. He was part of a network of prominent Sufis in Nishapur that were shaping the competing forms of spirituality during the 11th century. Due to this noteworthy role in Sufism, Kushiri's work has rarely been examined within the context of the concurrent and intimately connected traditions with which he was engaged. Martin Wen has meticulously reconstructed the nexus of Kusheri's intellectual field through a close examination of his Quran commentary, the Lataf al-Isharat, or the Subtleties of the Signs. Wen draws Kusheri's legal training in the Shafi Medheb and his theological positioning in the Asri school to the surface. He also demonstrates that Kusheri had a continuing exegetical corpus and was long committed to Quranic commentary. As the final iteration of his tafsir, the Lataf points to Kusheri's alignment with the Nishapuri collective of exegetical hermeneutics. Some of the various issues Wen's close reading explores include the clear and ambiguous Quran verses, the notion of abrogation, the ascension narrative, the disconnected letters in the Quran, the narrative of Job, anthropomorphism, and the masperin-aspirant relationship. In our conversation, we also discussed the notion of tradition, exploring archives and manuscripts, composition and audience, the notion of attribution, exoteric versus esoteric commentaries, and Wen's great website, Islamicana. Without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Martin Wen about his great new book, Sufi Master and Quran Scholar. Abu Qasim al-Kusheri and al-Lata'if al-Isharat. Welcome, Martin. How are you? Oh, very good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for making some time to talk to me. Um, I think you've really produced a tremendous book here, and uh, I appreciate all the hard work. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a real piece of serious scholarship, and uh, you've definitely advanced our, our knowledge of Kusheri and uh, Quranic studies uh, more generally. So thank you very much. Before we uh, kind of delve in, though, would you mind kind of giving us a little bit of background about how how you got interested in Islamic studies, people that might have been influential in uh, the way you approach the topic or kind of the the subject matters that you're interested in? Oh, sure. Uh, I guess it really began in undergraduate when I was at the University of Virginia. Uh, I was taking my elective courses and ran across a religious studies course being offered by uh, Professor Abdulaziz Sajidina. And one class with him uh, pretty much led to a series of others. 
Um, and from there, I just became very interested in studying uh, the religious traditions in general. And, and as many know, you know, UVA has a fantastic religion department. Uh, from there, I pursued a master's of theological studies at Harvard Divinity School, where I studied quite a bit of, uh, well, Christian theology in addition to Islamic studies. Uh, but it was during that period where I, I fine-tuned my interests. I really discovered that my passion was for um, pursuing the Islamic intellectual tradition uh, in the pre-modern period, trying to understand, you know, where all of this, these contemporary situations we were dealing with, how did they form, where did they emerge from. And from there, I went on to do the PhD at Harvard at the Center for Mideast Studies. Uh, it was a, it's a joint program where it's between Mideast Studies and History. Uh, I worked with Roy Motahede. And my uh, dissertation uh, committee eventually also included uh, Shahab Ahmed and uh, Jim Morris over at Boston College. And it was really just, um, you know, my exposure to the very kind of interdisciplinary approach that's available at Harvard um, that led me to, to working on Kusheri and developing the book that we have uh, now. Uh, essentially, and, and you know, during the course of all of this, uh, I also discovered that my, my greatest interest was with uh, the mystical tradition, with Sufism. But it wasn't just simply with Sufism itself, but how did it interrelate to the other aspects of the, of, uh, the tradition, right? How do the other religious sciences uh, contribute, shape, and influence the formation of Sufism, and vice versa? In what way did mystical thought have an impact on other lines of development? Yeah, and I think you you really do a great job of, uh, within the book of, of tying these traditions together. And I think uh, if if we can follow in your footsteps, uh, we'll be doing much better. Um, can you can you talk a little bit of how this specific project uh, emerged? Maybe uh, you know was it part of your course development that you were introducing into uh, Kocheri's work? Or oh yes. Well, I was, I was always interested in studying the Qur'an and looking at the, the many traditions of interpretation that have developed over time. And so the field of tafsir was something that was relatively, um, not new, but uh, was gaining more and more traction. I think more and more scholars were being to become interested in, in doing tafsir studies. There are obviously incredible work being done in the decades preceding uh, my own time. Um, but I think around the time when I began to uh, develop a dissertation topic focused on Kusheri, um, tafsir in general, uh, tafsir in general was pretty much uh, getting more attention. And I realized, you know, if you really want to understand uh, how different traditions engage with with the larger meta tradition of Islam, you have to look to Scripture, right? The Quran is an anchor of sorts, and the field of tafsir gives us some insight into how different scholars from whatever field, be it philosophy or theology, uh, be it from the legal tradition, how do they deal with tafsir? Right? How are they dealing with these verses of the Quran? Um, and so I was actually entertaining a variety of different scholars. I was looking at Taburi for a while, but it was during a seminar with Shahab Ahmed um, that Kusheri was brought to my attention. And so I took a look at this, right? It's, it's, it's not an incredibly overwhelming tafsir, right? It's not like Taburi uh, al-Thalabi, where you're dealing with just, you know, a dozen volumes or so of texts. Um, rather, with Kushira, you're dealing with, with, in most printings, a three-volume tafsir. So it's not incredibly short. It's manageable. 
And as I began to look at this text, I realized that this is an extremely rich and interesting tafsir when it comes to the Sufi tradition. But it also contains so much more. And I think that's what really captivated me. I saw that there was potential here to, to study this one scholar and how he engages with the Quran in this specific commentary. I could extrapolate from that, right, all these other various influences. What, is the, what, what does the web of influence actually look like uh, in terms of forming this particular text? And so I continued onwards, uh, just plowing through the lata'if and seeing what was there. Um, can, you, can you just uh, briefly introduce us to Kusheri? Who, who was he? Uh, well, Kusheri is... is typically uh, remembered as a Sufi master, right? He's, he's seen as a, a spiritual teacher of great influence. He's from the 11th century uh, or dies in 1072. And he's often seen as part of that spiritual lineage, right? That leads to other great spiritual masters like Abu Hamid al-Ghazali and so on. Um, his most famous work or the work by which he is most well known today is this text called the Risala, a treatise on Sufism. And it's an interesting text, right? It provides a biographical dictionary of who are the great luminaries that lead up to the Sufi tradition, that develop the Sufi tradition in all its various forms and shapes. It provides a lexicon of terminology that this is the specific language and the vocabulary that the Sufis actually used. And it goes through some major issues, theological issues that Sufis had to deal with, of trying to make sense of, right? Like miracles or saints or, well, rather friends of God, the awliya. Um, and while I thought Kusheri was important in this respect, here you have this, this tafsir that has endured down through the centuries, the Lataf al-Ishirat, which has gained very little attention. Um, there have been studies prior to, to my own work, right? You have Annabelle Keeler's important text, Christian Science has given attention to it, among others. But there hadn't been kind of an in-depth look at this one text. And so when I wanted to, to look at this, I thought, well, if we're going to appreciate the Lataf al-Ishirat, we have to appreciate Kusheri. And Kusheri, right, while he is a Sufi master, he is more than that. Um, when you look at his background, his educational training, uh, he's trained as a traditional uh, Shafi scholar, right? He's part of a legal tradition. He receives, uh, he receives the, 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 the classical training you would expect of any jurist. He also studies theology. We find that he's also very committed to the Ash'ari school of theology, right? He's, he's, his teachers are among the great masters who disseminate the school from Baghdad into Khurasan, right? Uh, eastwards into Central Asia. And so you see that Kushiri, while yes, he's a Sufi master, part of his pedigree, part of his training is very much also uh, within the, the legal tradition, the theological tradition. He receives you know, the, the training that you would expect of any religious scholar in terms of language. Uh, he studies Hadith and he studies the Quran. And so Kushiri, while yes, a, a Sufi master, also has um, kind of this consummate education that any Sunni scholar would actually receive, at least for this time period. Now, um, but before we get into uh, some of the sources that you're actually using, uh, mm-hmm. since I'm I'm the host and I can ask you whatever questions I want, sure. there was one footnote that uh, really struck me uh, personally because I'm I'm really interested in this notion of tradition. Well, I'm glad and you're reading the footnotes. You ha- yes, you have this <laughs> you have this uh, rather extended uh, footnote on the notion of tradition, and while it's a footnote, uh, you can see that you're reflecting upon this idea of tradition throughout. And I think towards the end of the book, you, you talk about uh, Kusheri is uh, working in concurrent and intimately connected traditions. Um, I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about your notion of tradition and, and, and how you see these 
these are various things that we might often think as separate, right? Theology and mysticism and all these other things. Uh, how how was this this study of of Kusheri and the, the Lataif? How does it tie all these together? Ah, well, um, no, thank you for this question. Uh, in, in many ways, I see Kusheri as as standing at the confluence, right, of, of various traditions, and that the Sunni tradition writ large is really um, the construction or the bringing together of a variety of threads and strands, right? It's kind of like the weaving of a rope, taking you know individual strands and binding them together, um, and yes, yeah, so that. that that lengthy footnote, which you came across, uh, essentially was my attempt to kind of tease out uh, what is this notion of tradition. I mean, the notion of tradition comes up time and again um, throughout the literature, throughout the rhetoric. Uh, it manifests, uh, you know, with different vocabulary depending on which time period you're looking at. But there's this this notion that there's there's this thing called tradition, and what is that? Um, and what I'm trying to to demonstrate, right, is the tradition is something that's organic. Right. I think when you're standing from within that community, you're looking at tradition as something that is fixed. It's connection to the past. And what makes, uh, it, what, what gives you authoritativeness, it gives you legitimacy, it provides guidance, right? It's, it's your way of, of being anchored or connected uh, to that sacred past, to, to the religious text, to uh, the prophetic character, right? To, to what have you. Um, and so while there's this perception of fixity, when you actually look at how uh, the tradition unfolds, how tradition develops, Right? You see that it's constantly changing and adjusting, right? that the circumstances of the time, uh, social forces, political forces, have an impact on how the tradition will adapt to survive. Right? Because a tradition is also something that is literally passed down, transmitted from one generation to the other. And with that transition, right, there is this element of preservation, but there's also an element of adaptation. I think that's something right, with kind of modern historical consciousness we're, we're able to see. And I'm trying to show that, yes, you know, Kushera, he's... he's Part of his whole career is trying to, to argue that, you know, my position as a Shafi, as, a, as a, um, an Ashari, as a Sufi, is very much within the Sunni tradition, the Al-Sunnah. But it's a case he has to make, right? He has to construct a vision of the tradition to show that his place and his circle, right, fit into that larger community. Um, and so that's why I thought the Latab is fantastic, because it shows all these smaller threads, these intellectual trends, these, these distinct compartmentalized disciplines being brought together to construct a larger vision of what Kusheri sees as, well, here's my Sunni tradition. This is how I fit in. This is how my circle, my network of individuals, of, of, of colleagues, scholars, family members fit into what I see as uh, the larger Sunni tradition. Yeah, I, I would recommend to potential readers to... Uh, Look specifically at this note in the in the I believe it's in the introduction. If you're one who skips footnotes, uh, read that one because it comes through throughout the book, and you you do a very good job of tying tying all those threads together. Um, yeah, I, I I do. Uh, I, I should mention that this is something I'm trying to take up with with one of my future book projects. Right, the next thing I have in the pipeline is essentially um, a work that's trying to look at the constructiveness of tradition while also trying to look at, you know, how is continuity maintained in that very notion of constructiveness. But that, that can be for later. Yeah. Um, so this, this also, this idea of tradition uh, leads us to sources, right? And you use a number of uh, sources, both manuscript and then dozens and dozens of, uh, of, of primary sources. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about uh, – about your sources and and how you came across them, how you uh, were working with them, and um, why you know how how they came across. Uh, well, essentially, I, I developed over the course of my work, my research, uh, 
what I would call manuscript fever, right? Um, you know, when it comes to Gusheri and the Lata of Isharat, uh, it is something that's been edited, it's been printed. Uh, there is really no need necessarily to go and consult the manuscripts, right? You can kind of take it for granted that, you know, someone's done the work. They've, they've uh, taken the time to comb through this text and produce a, a print edition that can be readily available, that things should stop there. But, you know, this book isn't just about the Lataif. I would say that the, the first part, the first few chapters, is just trying to provide a more rigorous uh, profile for who Kusheri is, right? Give us an intellectual biography. And part of that is trying to unearth all the other texts that he's producing. Because he's not just dealing with, with uh, Sufi texts, right? We can find theological treatises. Uh, we can find poetry, right? We can, we can find uh, all sorts of um, kind of different works like commentaries on the divine names and, and so on. And so in trying to map out right, the, the textual character or the textual legacy that Pusheri leaves behind, I had to begin to look um, to manuscripts. And I'm glad I did uh, because one of the fortunate things that I discovered along the way, thanks to other colleagues working at Pusheri, is that the, the Lataf al-Sharat itself, right, a book that has been printed, uh, edited, um, has certain errors or has certain aspects missing, right? That we can, that we've discovered now um, other manuscripts that that seem to indicate that there are elements in the, in the commentary that were excluded from the print edition that's readily available. Um, and while that doesn't make a, a big impact in the findings that I come across uh, in this book, Sufi Master and Quran Scholar, I think it's noteworthy, right? For any scholar who's going to be working Kushiri in the future, um, there is still a need to consult the manuscript tradition. Um, and so this took me, right, pretty much. Uh, across the Atlantic. I spent time uh, primarily in Istanbul looking through the, the archives in Suleimania, um, seeing what was available there. Uh, all, and of course, there's archives uh, in London and Princeton that I, I took advantage of, um, and also in Cairo recently. But, you know, it's, it's, it's painstaking work, but it's extremely rewarding, uh, extremely fulfilling when you actually go and do this. Um, because when you pick up a manuscript, or you look at at least I guess the trend now is to look at a digitized version of a manuscript. You're, you're looking at, you know, the very page that a scholar used himself uh, in studying this text by Pusheri or whoever you're, you're investigating. And I think that made the, the experience a bit more, uh, more real, right? That, that this is very much um, a, a lived tradition, that what Pusheri contributes is the text that he's composing was passed down. It was hand copied, right? It was, it was preserved. It was, it was treasured. It was taken up and studied. Um, so I think that, that dimension of, of turning to the manuscripts made, I think, my experience of doing this research uh, much more gratifying. Um, now, could you tell us a little bit about the Latath itself, uh, you know, what it looks like, the, the structure, the style, and maybe um, specifically you could talk about um, how it was composed um, and possibly in relation to what, what type of audience um, since we know a lot of, of uh, works during this time were just copied uh, during speaking. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about that as well? Sure. I mean, it's, it's, this isn't conclusive, but a, my own thesis is that this is a text that was being delivered orally, right? That he's, he's presenting the Latah Sharat um, before a, a group of students, of disciples, of, of individuals who have to look to Kusheri as a spiritual master, who want to get his insights on what the Quran means for them. Uh, and so the structure of the Latif is, is very deliberate. Right? The way that he composes it, he uses um, a range of registers. Right? You can tell by the tone of voice that he's using uh, the nature of the message he's trying to convey. 
right? And one of the points that I try to make throughout the book is that you can really see kind of a ladder of interpretation. That when it comes to a verse, a verse that's, that is, uh, let's see, that has a higher potential for a multiplicity of, of possibilities, right? He typically begins with the most conventional interpretation, right? What will you find in a typical tafsir, the grammatical explanation, uh, a poetic reference perhaps. Um, but then he, he'll, he'll build upon that. Right? He's, he's, he's trying to provide that basic knowledge that he may extrapolate and say, well, here's also a legal ruling that you can have. Or perhaps here's a theological implication that you have. And, he said, and you see through, via this ladder of interpretation that his concern or priority is escalating. Right? It's, it's rising higher and higher. And at the apex of, of these kind of ladders of interpretation, that's when he provides that mystical insight. That's when he tries to, to provide um, some sort of um, spiritual reality to, for this particular verse. Um, and so this is where I, I see, right? You can, you can imagine that Kusheri is seated before his students and he's trying to instruct them. Right? He has a pedagogical purpose in mind. Let me explain to you, right, that with this Quranic verse, you should have this basic foundational knowledge in mind. But once you have that, realize that there are higher realities, right? Uh, higher levels that one can understand. And that's when he delves into the more uh, mystically oriented uh, kind of hermeneutics. Um, and, and, you know, this doesn't happen with every verse, but it does happen quite often. And if you just, you know, pick up and randomly open the, the commentary itself, um, his style of language, right, when, he, when, he's, when he's speaking from his own voice is, is when he's kind of delving to the more eloquent Arabic, right? When he's playing with words, he's dealing with kind of rhymed prose. Um, it's, it's, it's when this language is used that you realize that he's, he's trying to impart some sort of mystical truth or mystical insight, right? When he's trying to do that more base uh, conventional explanation, you know, his sentences are very simple. It's straightforward. Let me get this point, you know, conveyed to you as clearly and as succinctly as possible. And so you see this range. Um, now, Martin, in the first couple chapters, you, uh, you basically try to lay out uh, kind of the historical context that Kusheri is uh, working in. Could you tell us a little bit about this, maybe who his masters were, who his important contemporaries were. Um, the, you know, Nishapur becomes very important. Maybe you could talk about some of the social political oh, uh, sure. happenings that would be influential in, in Kusheri's life and how he might interpret the Quran. Right. I mean, what I've just spoken about is really kind of just one level of appreciating where this text comes from. Right? We kind of have this sense of the immediacy in which uh, the immediacy of the audience that he's trying to reach out to, right? Who is he trying to speak to? But we also need to realize that his whole life, right, is, is mired within kind of the political intrigue, uh, the competition that's going back and forth within um, his, his situation, right? He's living in Nishapur, this, this intellectual crossroads. It's a very cosmopolitan city. We have all these different groups that are, that are present, uh, all of them vying for prominence, if not power, Right uh, within this one city, and when, and if you go back and just look through the biographical dictionaries, many of the prominent names that we know today, right, have some connection to Nishapur. That they spent time, that they traveled there to study. It was definitely a place that one would go to seek knowledge. And so the Lataif is very much a product of this. That it's not something that's you know written in a vacuum. It's not just it's not written by uh, some sort of spiritual master in retreat. Right, he's in the city, part of that uh, of of the political web that's there, and. In that respect, right, we can read, for example, the theological aspects of the commentary while that's reflecting his advocacy of the Ashari school. And so to kind of provide a, a bit of background of what Nishapur is like, it very much 
um, was divided at this time between a number of factions. You have um, we have the Shia who are in one neighborhood of the city. You have the Hanafis who, who constitute another major group, and you have the Shafis, um, to which Kushairi, uh, you know, identifies with. It's, it's this is the network with which he's, he's he's been studying. It's it's the network with which he's he's uh, uh, connected through marriage, um, and so these aspects all are going to have some effect right on or have some role to play in informing how to interpret and understand the Latif. And the Latif itself, too, is something that's written uh, when Kusheri is, 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 is older. He's in his 60s by the time he begins it. We can then imagine that this commentary very much, very much is um, you know, the culmination of a lifetime of meditation. That he's, he's been reflecting and working with the Quran throughout his life. He's been studying under the tutelage of, of other great masters, and now it's his turn, right? Now in his 60s to compose something um, here. And, and he's, he's doing tafsir, right? I mean, this activity of, of engaging with the Quran is something that, that he's consciously doing as a scholarly activity. And this is something that I think is interesting about Nishapur, that the act of composing a tafsir um, was a way of asserting one's scholarly identity, of one's association. And this is something that I, I, I touch upon in the book, and I've made explicit elsewhere, is that in the city of Nishapur itself, the Shafi's, the Shafi group was very much invested in producing tafsir. It was seen as an activity that one did to essentially um, establish your, your, your kind of the boundaries of how you saw the tradition. Um, and so uh, when Kushere writes the tafsir, he's essentially imitating many of his other masters, right? Uh, he studies with the great uh, Sufi master, uh, Sufi master, uh, Abu Abdurrahman al-Sulami, who's, who's very well known uh, um, for composing a variety of works, the tafsir of himself. And you can see in Kushiri's tafsir the influence of Sulami. But, you know, Kushiri also studies with the Ashari theologian Ibn Furuk, who also composes a tafsir. Right? And those theological elements, those concerns, seem to get translated or transferred over into Kushiri's concerns. There's even elements of Shafi jurisprudence, things that he would have picked up from his teachers, like Abu Bakr al-Tusi, Right, that you know are being expressed and how he interprets verses there, and so I think these these other teachers who are in the city who are already doing tafsir who are teaching kusheri, right? It's feeding into this tradition of of if you're going to be a scholar of the Shafi school, right? Well, then you should be engaging with a with a, with a tafsir yourself. And part of my argument is that there really is a a school of Quranic exegesis in Nishapur. That this is something that we perhaps don't see as prominent or as prevalent in other cities across the Muslim world at this time. Not to say that tafsir wasn't being done, but just give it the evidence that we have, right? Um, Nishapur is definitely one major locus in which tafsir was being produced, right? You have individuals like Thalabi, uh, who Walid Saleh has, has done an excellent study on and, and demonstrating right, the critical importance of tafsir for him and his lineage. But there's others in the city, right? Like Sulami, like Kusheri. Uh, Kharbushi, another Sufi who's, who's doing an explanation of, of the Quran in his works. Uh, clearly, this, this uh, work of tafsir is um, something of great import for one scholarly identity, specifically, or especially rather, uh, for the Shafis. Now, um, once you start getting to the actual text, um, you been, begin by kind of going through some of the uh, just the basics about the, the style of it. And uh, one of the things that uh, happens, especially in the introduction, um, is you talk about um, almost how Kusheri sees his his commentary. He ta- he talks about these uh, the differences between ilm and uh, marifa. I'm wondering if mm-hmm. you could talk a little bit about 
that introduction where he 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 uh, he talks about these distinctions and what he does with them. All right, um, this is something he actually makes very explicit. For example, when he when he deals with the uh, the famous verse on the Muhkam and Mutashabihat, right? The uh, I guess the the clear and the ambiguous verses of the Quran in, in verse three seven, um, and and so this is a great way of trying to show what is how does Kushayri see. Um, this difference between ilm and marifa. And I think it has very much to do with this ladder of interpretation I'm describing, that he sees knowledge as hierarchical, right? And that, 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 yes, you must have a strong foundation as a traditional religious scholar, studying things like hadith and Quran and, and law and theology. And that, you know, that represents this, 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 you know, basic level of understanding that all scholars should attain, but he also recognizes, right, as someone who's part of the Sufi tradition, who, who recognizes that there's this thing called the Sufi path, that there is a, a higher attainment of knowledge, something that is bequeathed by God, this thing called ma'rifa, right? And these are spiritual insights um, that, that one can attain, but make sure if you're going to try to pursue this path, if you're going to try to look for ma'rifa, you have uh, your credentials established, right? That you actually know the, the more conventional basic understandings, the, the foundations of the religion before you try to penetrate into these higher realities, and so I think um, when he talks about, for example, the, the clear and the ambiguous verses, when he talks about the Mutashabihat, he actually says that these ambiguous verses um, are actually accessible by human beings. This is not something that is only within the ken uh, or within the, the realm of God's knowledge. Humans can actually attain this too, but it's something that God bequeaths, right? And this gets back to this notion of marifa, right? That, that, you know, that God can endow, can grant to certain individuals of perhaps a, a you know, greater clarity or insight to understanding these, these verses that seem a little less accessible than others. Yeah, so you, you note that these and uh, some other ideas are interpretive categories that basically situate Kusheri's uh, tafsir within this kind of broader uh, school that you're talking about. Um, the other, the other uh, interpretive category that you talk about is abrogation. Can you talk a little bit about uh, his, his understanding of, of abrogation? Oh yes, well he you know he subscribes to uh, to the I would say the, the typically mainstream uh, view within within you know the field of Quranic studies uh, for that time period right that you know this is that there are verses which can be abrogated that they can be replaced or substituted uh, with a later verse for whatever reason right that through God's wisdom things have changed um, and he provides a very conventional definition of nasq abrogation uh, when it's mentioned in, in the relevant verses but then he also right kind of following that notion of a hierarchical or ladder of interpretation, he'll then begin to transform that and say that, you know, this notion of abrogation, well, we can actually almost transform this idea into something more spiritual. And he gets into highly symbolic language, and that's where you get really a taste um, for his more mystical insights, where he's trying to make it relevant to these to the circle of students that's, that's seated in front of him, um, trying to, to understand, you know, what are the these, these greater depths we can ascertain? Well, you know, even the concept of Nesqua seems, which is notion of abrogation, which seems so kind of conventional in terms of dealing with Quran in perhaps a legal manner, uh, can also be a, a way of understanding how the cosmos works, right? Um, and so, you know, you can actually refer to, to that section of that chapter to, to get a, the kind of a taste for the language that he's using. Um, so in, in the, next, the, the following chapter, you talk about uh, this idea of attribution. And... Uh, one of one of the things that's really interesting about the Lataif is uh, he he doesn't really specifically cite people. Yeah. Um, so could could you talk about 
how Kusheri is using his sources in the Lasalif itself and why that why that's noteworthy. Why is that uh-huh. interesting? <laughs> well it was it, it made my work incredibly difficult, right? Because when you open a typical tafsir, a typical commentary, um you will find some sort of attribution of, of, you know, who is your authority? Where do you hear this from, right? If you open Tabari or Thalabi, there's typically some sort of um, reference to tell you that, you know, here's the chain of transmission or here's uh, the, the, uh, the figure from which I'm getting this from. But with Kusheri, very rarely does any sort of attribution ever appear. Um, the one name that appears semi-consistently is his first spiritual master, right? The person who turns him onto the Sufi path, this figure, Abu Ali al um, a Sufi master who leaves behind no written record himself, but was incredibly influential on Kusheri. And Kusheri will, will actually name him, and he only names him five times. And so, and this is the, the most referenced authority you find in the Latif itself, which is, you know, tells you how, how, um, how few names actually appear here. Um, but, but this is noteworthy simply because uh, it seems to go against convention. I think it feeds into my own argument that this, this demonstrates kind of the oral character of the delivery of the text itself. It demonstrates that, you know, this is, there's a pedagogical purpose here. He's trying to impart, right, these, these, uh, his interpretations, these readings of the Quran, and that the authorities are taking a back seat because his audience, right, are these Sufi disciples, these, these aspirants to the path. And so um, his emphasis is more about the content, the meaning, what we can derive uh, from the verses of the Quran rather than the various sources upon which he's drawing. But this, this of course, is difficult for me, right? Because as I'm working through this text, I'm interested in the traditions that he's borrowing from. Uh, and so part of the process was trying to isolate you know, certain kind of key studies, cases within the text itself that I could turn to and say, well, can I mine this information? Um, and, and do perhaps comparative reading with uh, comparative readings with contemporary or earlier sources to get a sense of well, who is he using? All right, so maybe he's not naming individuals. But can we look at the in- interpretations that he's offering and, and find traditions, right, lineages uh, of of how these uh, of specific opinions that are passed down generation after generation, right? You know, if if he's if he's you know studying with Sulami, who writes the Tafsir, can I read Sulami's commentary and read Kushiri's commentary and find linkages? Can I look at Ibn Furuk's commentary and Kusheri's commentary and find linkages? Um, and so uh, this, this opened up a, a new frontier for, the, for my research, right? It, it, it pretty much forced me to do a very close reading of, of these key case studies that I uh, focused in on. And the case studies that I eventually selected um, were the uh, disconnected or disjointed letters of the Quran, right? These haruf and that appear in front of 29 different surahs, um, the, the, the narratives... Uh, having to do with the Prophet Ayu with Job, um, and then the the Mirage, right? The Ascension, the Heavenly Ascension. Um, can we find uh, can we find a genealogy of opinions rooted in these three case studies? And that's how I went about essentially trying to figure out who are these influences, who are the sources, or the possible traditions which Kusheri was encountering. Um. Martin, I think this is great, uh, possibly because I have to do the same thing in my work. <laughs> uh, but where, so uh, kind of from a the more kind of methodological uh, standpoint, where, where do you see kind of the limits of this approach? Uh, you know, I, uh. I certainly think it's valuable, and I think the case studies you, you use demonstrate that, that there are these kind of interconnections. Um, but I mean, you from from what you wrote in the book and from other conversations, I know you've thought about this 
you know, pretty extensively. So wh- how, how far can we take that kind of approach, do you think? Well, I think the, the kind of the, the, the critical point with this type of approach is that it's always indeterminate, right? When, when Bushiri himself is never explicit, when he never names the sources he's using, when he doesn't provide, you know, some sort of reference or obvious key, uh, the work that, that one does in terms of comparative reading is, is purely speculative, right? So yes, you know, Kusheri, for, you know, for example, we know they studied with Sulaiman, um, but you know, unless we can find some hard evidence, or do we actually know that he actually was able to read the texts of, that Sulaiman wrote, or perhaps he's hearing things in passing when he's sitting at the feet of, of, of Sulaiman and listening to the lessons as a student? Um, I think there's always this question that all right, so maybe he and Thalabi are part of a shared tradition. But, you know, were they really in conversation with one another or are they drawing upon a common text? We can never be sure, you know, of, of you know, where the, 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 the actual source is. We can say at best they're from a particular lineage or tradition, that they're engaging with a common tradition. But we can't actually say that Kushiri met with A or B or C. We can only speculate, conjecture, right, that um, this might be the case. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a challenge or, or um, uh, it's, it's a difficulty that we just it's, it's hard to avoid especially when you're doing something comparative. But it's, you know, in, in a case like this, it may be the only recourse or perhaps the best recourse available. Yeah. Um, you, you don't talk about the, the relationship in, in this specific part in the book, but maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, his earlier tafsir and how, how that makes more explicit uh, and maybe why he wrote a second. Oh, yes, yes. Um, I think what the Lotafi represents, right, is, is something that is written in kind of the height of his career. But, you know, if you really comb through the biographical information of Kushida, you realize that he was engaged with Tafsir pretty much uh, from very early on. Right? Once he begins his formal study of the religious sciences, um, he's doing Tafsir. And, and an, an article um, that really complements this work or builds upon um, the third chapter of, of, of this book, I tried to explore um, these earlier commentaries. The problem is the, these earlier commentaries don't exist um, as a whole. We have fragments that claim to be these earlier, this, this earlier commentary, um, but we're not quite sure. Um, but what I think it shows is, is definitely progression. And I, I've, looked at some, I've looked at two manuscripts that, that claim to be these early uh, commentaries of Kusheri, and it's very clear that you know, when Kusheri starts out, He's very much, you know, in the midst of his conventional education as a Sunni scholar. He's studying, um, he's studying tafsir uh, from a very mainstream position. And by the time, you know, he reaches, you know, the venerable uh, sixth decade of his life, right, he's advanced. Uh, he's, he's now, you know, incorporating that conventional understanding of things. But now he's bringing to it, like, the weight of his, of his, uh, uh, of his authority as, as a Sufi master. But it's clear that, you know, this is something that's sustained. And what's interesting is that the earlier tafsir, it's more clear there um, that the, the nature of the delivery of, of, of um, his exegesis of the Quran was oral. It was something done in regular sessions, right? That he's, that he's trying to, um, to, to really teach students. And so that, what's, that I think, uh, helped me come to the conclusion that the Latif itself is, is, you know, is just following that same pattern. And you can see that in the text. But, you know, very much that, you know, this, this notion of exegesis is something that's, that permeates his life. That his concern for the Qur'an um, is just seen in the way he talks about Sufism, say in the Rasala, but also in, in his close engagement um, in these various commentaries that he composes. Um, 
Correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, don't others think that it was not delivered orally? Oh, that the text was delivered orally? Yeah. Oh, that was it not? Did I read that incorrectly? I thought you mentioned somewhere that others argue that it was written. uh, That was – there is – there – I would say the the other opinion that's kind of floating out there isn't necessarily in opposition, right, to to the idea that it was delivered orally, but it's clear from the language that it's um, very carefully composed, right? The it's highly poetic, so there must have been a lot of deliberation put into the composition of the language. But in my mind, that doesn't necessarily contradict the notion that the commentary could be delivered orally, right? Could be delivered kind of extemporaneously. You know, some people have a gift with language, and I think he's he's an individual. You know, who after you know six decades of life has attained a certain degree of of eloquence that he's able to kind of speak extemporaneously or at least speak with a certain deliberateness um, from uh, just kind of uh, you know a, a spontaneous moment. I, I so I wouldn't say that the the other opinions out there are necessarily at odds with his notion of of, of public discourse. Um, I think they can actually be made, they can be reconciled. Sure. Um, now, maybe you could walk us through um, some of these case studies that you 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 do and uh, and and what they kind of reveal to us. Uh, sure. I don't know if you have a preference. Uh, you, so yeah. you talk about the the the, the mirage, You talk about the these disconnected letters. Um, they all kind of reveal different things to us. So I mean, you can, right. you can walk us through all of them if you'd like, but. Well, yeah, the, uh, I, I can start with at least those two cases. Um, the Mirage is interesting because it shows um, the progression of Kusheri, uh from from within his own career. Because with with that uh, particular case, I'm looking you know at the verses that deal with with the ascension, right? Things that, for example, appear uh, in the in the fifty third surah, right? The first first uh, several verses of that surah deal with this notion of the Mirage. and of course, I'm looking at the Lataif, but he also wrote a book called the Kitab Mirage, the Book of the Ascension. And this is an interesting book because it's 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 very um, eclectic. It's, it's drawing upon a lot of different fields, right? The book opens with looking at the hadith that report on the Prophet Muhammad's ascension into heaven. Then it turns to kind of these theological issues of when did it happen? When did it take place? From which city did it uh, transpire? Um, did, did Muhammad go on the ascension in a, in a bodily um, in a bodily fashion? Was it in a dream by spirit? Um, but then it turns to the Sufis who go on it, and then the book ends. The book ends. Uh, with a proper commentary of the Quran, uh, at least on, on, on the beginning of Surah 53, Surah Zanajim. And so what I did with, with this case study is I looked at Kitab al-Miraj, written by Kushiri and the Lataif, and his treatment of that same section, and, and tried to do a very close reading to show that there's continuity, uh, to show that you know, there's, there's a certain carry over there, but there are also certain differences. I think you can see development. And again, you know, in this case, one can't be certain which comes first, but my feeling is the Latafi Sharat is, is something that, that has um, a more mature feel to it. Uh, there's a certain kind of developedness or uh, a more kind of advanced insight into what these verses possibly mean. And so I use that case study to actually try to track Bushiri's own development, his own kind of um, approach to the ascension itself. Uh, with the with Harufu uh, Mokata'a, right, these disconnected letters, um, this is something... Um, which was much more fruitful in trying to show the other traditions, right? Other kind of schools of exegesis that Kushiri is drawing upon. Because, you know, if you're going to write a commentary of the Quran, you go verse by verse, you will invariably have to deal with these disconnected letters. And so I was able to really kind of um, to pull or draw out 
uh, the different interpretations from his contemporaries like Al-Wahidi, um, Al-Fa'labi, uh, and earlier figures like Al-Taburi, uh, Sulami, Al-Tustari, right? people from, who are writing very Sufi commentaries, people are writing encyclopedic commentaries um, uh, to, to those who are situated in Nishapur, right? His, his fellow Nishapuri uh, Mufassirin, the other exegetes of the Quran from the city of Nishapur. And when I was able to actually set these all side by side, I was able to actually dispel certain kind of misconception, right? Uh, there was a theory earlier that, that Kushiri's tafsir is nothing more really than kind of an, than an expansion upon uh, Sulami's tafsir. And while, you know, you can look at the, the disconnected letters and say, okay, you're right. I can see the strong influence of Sulami on some of the opinions that Kushiri presents. And Kushiri presents, I think, a, about 13 different interpretations for uh, the first a set of, of disconnected letters that appear in the Quran. You know, well, that resonance is with Sulami is, is, is actually with only two or three opinions. But then you turn to someone like Taburi, and you see there's much more. That he's more inclined to draw upon the encyclopedic tradition. And then you turn to Fa'labi, right, his contemporary, uh, someone who's, who's more senior than him, someone he has respect for as uh, uh, interpreter of the Quran, and you see a greater resonance there. And it's clear that, you know, Boucher is very much operating well, within the sphere of, of Nishapuri exegesis, and he's more willing, or he's, he's, he has more uh, access to uh, the Nishapuri tradition. And so you see uh, um, uh, greater affinity between him and Thalib and, Wah- and Wahidi when it comes to the disconnected letters than, say, with um, uh, the others, at least on a numerical level. And so I, I use, right, you can, you can turn to the disconnected letters and actually see, in this case, all right, so here's all these various traditions he's drawing upon, but now we see there's a greater preponderance uh, with his fellow Nishapuris from the Shafi tradition, right? And, and those who are doing more conventional encyclopedic-type work uh, than even the Sufi ones, right? And, if, and what's, what's also great about the, the mysterious, or oh, rather the uh, disconnected letters that Kushida deals with, you, you see opinions that are original to him. You actually see opinions that he himself is formulating for which there is no precedent, right? Um, uh, he's articulating in his own fashion. He's using his own voice. Um, and we can find some cases where uh, we actually see Kusheri, um developing his own interpretation after having presented everything else. Yeah, maybe you could uh, tell us a little bit about what he says about these. Oh, sure. So, you know, some of the conventional ones I'll mention is that, uh, that you know, one, one popular opinion that's repeated over and over again is that the uh, that the letters these disconnected letters are a secret of God, right? And and that essentially it's it's an uh, interpretation that, that leads to consignment. We consign the knowledge or the true meaning of these letters to God alone. And you find that pretty much across the board, people continue to refer to the letters as as a secret. You'll find that um, in, in Tostudi, you'll find that in Thalib. Uh, but then you'll have things where they they take the letters and try to like alif lam mim a l m. Uh, and they try to find equivalents, right? So the Aleph, you know, that's Allah. And, and the Lam stands for Jibreel. And the M is for Muhammad. Um, or perhaps the letters Aleph, Lam, Mim for Kusheri represent attributes of God, right? The, the Mim represents uh, Majd, right? The, the, the majesty of God. But the ones that I think are most interesting is, uh, are, for example, is when he actually looks at the nature of the letters themselves, right? He looks at the Aleph. Right, the letter Aleph, all it is is a single stroke, right, going from up to down. And he sees this, right, as, as the servant, right, before God, standing, right, alone, right? Uh, and, and it's a recognition of, of, you, know, the, of, of you know, every servant before God in isolation. It's a, it's a representation of, of the unity of the divine. Um, he, he goes, 
he even looks at the, the way that the letters are connected, when, how Arabic is written, right? Some letters are connected uh, to others and others are not. And he meditates on how, you know, for example, Aleph, Lamim, um, we can look at these forms and, and, and see, right, uh, the, the place of the human being before the divine. And, and there's a certain degree of creativity, of, of, of imagination here, which I think is interesting, right? That here's a, a Sufi master who looks at Aleph, Lamim, and rather than trying to actually say that, you know, you can look at these letters and this is what it actually means, he's saying, well, you know, how, how could we understand it? How can we actually derive something uh, fulfilling or meaningful from those letters? I think it's more about signification or, or, uh, or rather meaning-making than actually trying to find, you know, what does God intend with these? Um, now, uh, can you talk a little bit about this idea of uh, the, the stories of the prophets that we have in, in the Quran um, and use uh, Job, of course, to, to kind of exemplify this? Oh yes. Well, the, the situation with the uh, you know the, the prophets in the Quran is that you know the, we have we have so many different uh, uh, prophets named in the Quran itself, but when it comes to constructing the narratives, the uh, you know, information, biographical information, you know what goes on, what takes place, where the trials and tribulations they go through, uh, the Quran doesn't necessarily give us the full picture because part of it is that the audience you know, at the time knew they were familiar with these stories. Right, the illusion the, uh, was enough to kind of set in their minds that, oh, this is why, um, you know, this is why Job is actually mentioned, that we know what Job goes through. And so we don't need to have all those details. But, you know, as time passes, as the centuries kind of accumulate, uh, there's a distancing. And, and part of the job of the exegete was trying to fill in those blanks, trying to figure out, well, what's going on? And so, for example, of Job, there's really only two places in the Quran, and it's, you know, it's, it's a handful of verses that deal with the narrative of Job. But then you can look to, this is al-Anbiya literature, right, the, the tales of the prophets. And you can look to other tafsir, other commentaries to get a sense of, well, how did uh, the scholars try to explain, you know, who Job was? You know, what do we know about his trials and tribulations? Um, and so in, in the, when I turn to this, you know, we actually see that Kusheri, when he's trying to, to you know, explain certain situations, he's drawing upon, for example, Thalabi's uh, Tales of the Prophets in addition to the commentary of the Quran. And I think one of the interesting points, for example, with the story of Job, right, is that, you know, Job cries out. You know, he cries out from this affliction that he's suffering. And for Kusheri, you know, as an Ashari theologian, He's trying to find an interpretation that protects Job from showing some sort of doubt or, or complaint or frustration or despair right, against God. And so, for, one of, for example, one of the interesting interpretations he brings up right, is that the cry of affliction isn't from Job itself. Right? It's, it's from uh, the affliction that Job is suffering, right? that, that, that the physical boils or whatnot are, are crying out. Like, that's what's actually um, uh, crying out to God, not Job. Um, and I think this is this this reveals, for example, you know, the Ashri concern of 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 uh, Husheri. Uh, it's it's small, subtle things like this uh, where we can kind of draw, um, you know, those larger lines connecting to Husheri uh, to different schools and traditions. Yeah, maybe we can skip ahead to that because um, you you do have a whole chapter on on uh, mm-hmm. this idea of his Asherism. Um, so, uh, how how do you see this coming through? Um, you talk about him being, you know, kind of this elder representative uh, of this school at the time. Yeah. Um, so, you, you know, why, why is it so important for him, for this to come through in his, uh, his tafsir and, and how does it? Oh, sure. Well, I think this is perhaps one of the more riveting aspects of his biography. Right? Um, 
you know, he's in the city of Nishapur where there's, there's the, all these factions. The Hanafis and the Shafis at this time period just do not get along. And when the Seljuks, right, this new power, they move in and they establish rule in the city of Nishapur, uh, there really is this, this very heated contestation for influence. And essentially, um, at one point, right, or rather building over uh, a number of years, there's an intensification of scrutiny against the Asharis. And the Asharis are, are clearly associated with the Shafis at this time, right? And so Kusheri gets, gets embroiled in this huge debate on, well, it's Abu Hassan al-Ashari, right? The, 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 the founder of this school of theology. Is he even part of the Ahl-Sunnah? Is he actually part of the Sunni tradition, right? This is something, this is a question that's brought before him. And he issues a fatwa, right? As a religious scholar, he issues a fatwa that is co-signed, right, by a dozen other Shafi scholars trying to say, yes, he is. He is, he is of course, part of the Sunni tradition. The fact that he has to make this case, right, um, speaks to kind of the heated debate over who belongs and who does not. But then this escalates even further because once the Seljuks move in, they're swayed um, to oppose the, the Shafi Ashuris even further. And what happens is that the Ashuris, along with the Shia, are cursed from the pulpits, right? For when the Friday prayer takes place, when the, when the city congregates in these large congregational mosques, right? The, the khatib, the, the preacher, he has to, you know, he's, he's ordered to condemn the Shia. He's ordered to condemn the Ashuris. As you can imagine, you know, here's Kusheri, who's an ardent advocate of the Ashuris. He's written this, this fatwa defending Abu Hassan Ashuri. You know, he's, he's, he's now being targeted. Right? And this is actually, uh, this is seen as this, this, um, this persecution of Ashuris during the time. That in the city of Nishapur especially, that the Ashuris were heavily persecuted. Many of them actually had to flee. And Kusheri himself is named among three others um, to be arrested. Right? And, and the, one of the other famous people is actually uh, Imam Haramein al Juwaini. Uh, this great theologian, you know, the, um, and, you know, he gains this, this name, Imam Haramein, right, the, the, the religious scholar of, of the two sacred sanctuaries. Um, he gains it because he has to flee to Mecca and Medina because of this persecution. Right? And so what happens is when the issue, the edict, uh, uh, the warrant for their arrest is, is issued, Joanie, he's on the road. So he's like, you know what, I'm not in the city, I'm not going back. He heads, you know, he's able to kind of move on and go on pilgrimage to kind of escape this persecution. Kusheri's in the city, and he's actually arrested. And he's in the 70s at this point. So you can imagine, right, a 70-year-old man being dragged off to prison. And, you know, the story doesn't really end there because his compatriots, you know, these ardent Shafi Ashuris, they actually raise... Um, raise a small band of men, the soldiers, and they actually go and, and assault this, the city. There's, there's actually this, this conflict, right? The description is that the marketplace is filled with arrows. Um, uh, the, the, the people holding Kusheri, the, the authorities, refuse to let him go. Blood is shed, and eventually they realize they've, they, they've, they've lost ground, and they concede. They, they free Kusheri, and Kusheri leaves. Um, and of course, well, now that you know he's free, he can't really stay because still there's this notion of, of persecution. The Ashuris are still being uh, cursed from the pulpits; they're being denied positions of importance. And Kusheri does uh, does what any person will do: he goes on vacation, he goes on pilgrimage, uh, and he heads down to Mecca. And you have this whole caravan of religious scholars um, who go down to Mecca with him. Uh, he, and you know he's, he's going with Juwaini at this point. Um, but you can see right that his very life right. Uh, late in his life, is, is deeply influenced to his commitment to Asherism. Right? That the, his, his, his advocacy of Asherism, his leadership of the, the Shafi Ashuri um, faction within the city, results in his arrest. 
Now, the Lotal of Isharat is not written after this. It's actually written before this. It's written during the period when the Ashari persecution is, is ramping up. It hasn't happened yet, but it's, 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 it's on the horizon. They can see it coming. So given this knowledge, right, that history will unfold in this way, that it's very palpable for, the, for scholars like Kusher at this time, that, you know, Ashtaris are, are being persecuted, um, or, or rather they're being targeted, um, that, you know, there's a need to assert legitimacy of it. And so when I turned to the Lataif, I started looking, right, well, where can we find evidence of Kusheri asserting his Ashtari identity or asserting, asserting a positions of an Ashtari nature? Um, and one of the more prominent examples that I found has to do with the nature of God himself. How is he depicted? Um, the, the issue of Tashbi, right? Uh, what we might say is likening, but really this notion of anthropomorphism. Verses of the Quran that seem to describe God in an uh, anthropomorphic way, right? giving him human qualities, that he's seated upon the throne, that he has a hand, right? that he has position. Um, that he's part of time in some sense. So I was curious, you know, well, how does Kushere respond to this? And as befits any good Ashri theologian, what does Kushere do? Right? He's, he's, he, he articulates positions um, that are very much in line with the larger school itself. Right? Tries to take the anthropomorphic bite out of the verse and, and say that, no, there's other ways of looking at this. Right? There's other interpretations that are valid. Um, and so, right, you can see, right, that here's, here's this figure, Kusheri, a great Sufi master, but also a vested Ashri theologian, expressing these same concerns in his tafsir, right? When he's teaching his students, right, uh, it very much, the, the commentary that he gives mirrors his own concerns and predilections. Now, um, you also have a, a chapter that does a, kind of a, a similar job in uh, asserting his Shafi identity. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, this, is, this, is, uh, this is much more subtle, and I felt it was actually, um, I had to do a much closer reading or, or combing through the text to find it, but it's there, right? He presents a lot of um, juridical opinions, and many of them are, are you know, obviously going to be shared across different madahib. But, you know, I was able to find certain instances, for example, where client or more prominent among Shafi interpretations. Uh, one of the examples... Uh, comes from the 108th surah of the Quran, Fasalili Rabbika Wanhar, right? And that Wanhar means and sacrifice. Uh, but among certain Shafi's uh, interpretations, you actually find this notion that, you know, that also can, can mean, uh, be a reference to the positions, uh, the position of the hands during prayer, right? That you put it to the chest, Nahar, right? Um, and so, you know, that's just kind of a small example of, of how I was trying to show that, you know, Kushay was clearly familiar and perhaps even gave a certain degree of preference to Shafi interpretations when it mattered. Um, but I think it's, it's less pronounced than the Ashurism because Ashurism was something that was actually pinpointed, whereas the Shafi identity uh, wasn't necessarily contested on its, on its I don't know, Shafiness itself. Um, but, you know, that, that chapter was trying to try to show that, you know, just as there's a theological reflection, there's also a legal reflection of Kushari's concerns. Yeah, and uh, I think both of them are very important because you, you do a great job of, you, you talk earlier in the book about how this tafsir has just been called simply a mystical tafsir, right? Yes. A mystical commentary. So I think you do a very good job of, of showing that these it's these multiple elements or these uh, uh traditions coming together, right? Um, in the final chapter, you do kind of return to this idea of mysticism, though. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm wondering if you talk a little bit about some of the some of the more prominent things that 
uh, Kusheri speaks of, um, when you talk about this idea of miracles, it becomes very important. All right. Um, I mean, just, you know, part of, if you look at, you know, for example, the Risala, his other famous work, which is written at the same time as Lataif, you know, this, the notion of miracles, of, of, of uh, extraordinary things happening at the hands of other spiritual masters is very much part of the worldview, right, of Sufism. Um, and one has to try to, well, if you're, if you're going to be an Ashri theologian, right, as well as a Sufi, you need to somehow reconcile this. Because typically the notion of miracles uh, is, is, typically, well, is, is generally associated with prophets, right? Prophets perform miracles to, to, help, us, um, to help affirm the, the truthfulness of the message that they bring, right? It serves to support their mission. So what does it mean then that others who are non-prophets actually seem to have miracles? And so I, I return to this issue, which is of a theological concern, but also of, of a special important concern for Sufis. You know, how do they deal with this notion of karama, right? Miracles that happen in the hand of non-prophets, non-prophetic miracles. And I look at both the Risala and the Latah Fishara to see how does he resolve this issue. And I very deliberately put these Sufi concerns at the end of the book, right? Because I'm trying to show that with the, with the vast majority of, of the text itself, um, of, of the text that I wrote, Right, that you know, Kusheri is doing so many other things at the same time. But I felt it important to still include at the very end, right, that no, he still has Sufi concerns. And in fact, um, it would it would be I think it would be incorrect to say that this is not a Sufi tafsir. It's a Sufi tafsir that does that does so many other things. Um, but you know, I, I wanted to also kind of put it at the end to also reflect that ladder of interpretation that Kusheri does. Right, that you start with the conventional and then you move up to the more important issues. Right, and so. For Kushiri, you have to put in that legal material, but definitely make sure you put that Ashri identity there. Then, of course, Simos always ends right with that Sufi note. And I wanted the book to end with that same note. And while the book itself doesn't delve too deeply into the mystical interpretations that, that's there, that really wasn't my purpose in composing the text itself. Right? And doing this research, I wanted to show what else is there in Kushiri's hermeneutics. What else can we read in the text? Um, and you know, I really see the book as, as a stepping stone for further study of Kushiri and his works. And I think, you know, while this may be a, an important um, look into the Latafi Sharat, I don't see it as the last definitive um, examination of it. There's certainly more work to be done, and there's a, a host of other scholars now who are, are turning to Kushiri. And so I hope that this book and, and what I've done with it will kind of contribute uh, in a constructive way to, to future scholarship on him and his environment. Yeah, and it sounds sounds like that's already happening, right? You mentioned that there's a, a translation uh, underway, I believe, and mm-hmm. you just, uh, if I remember correctly, didn't you just edit a uh, issue for the Journal of Sufi Studies on Kusheri? Right. Um, uh, one of uh, yeah, the most recent volume of the Journal of Sufi Studies is a collection of papers dedicated to Kusheri and his legacy. Right. It was it was actually a very nice panel that we originally put together. Uh, for the American Academy of Religion. Um, all of us uh, decided that this was a good idea to kind of expand on this and, and to build on our presentations. And so now you can actually go to the Journal of Sufi Studies and see these, these um, kind of uh, further steps along the way in trying to, to gain greater clarity on, on who Kushiri is and how he fits into the larger tradition. Um, have you been, it's, uh, Kristen Sands is the one translating, is that right? Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you have any idea uh, when that is going to be done? I don't know if you've been in contact with her about this or... Oh, not recently, but, you know, it's 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 an unenviable task. Uh, because, <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's an admirable one, but also unenviable simply because Kusheri's, you know, text has very uh, 
eloquent and, and difficult to translate language, right? I mean, there are certain particularities to Arabic that are hard to, to bring into any sort of uh, idiomatic English. Um, and it's, it's mystical to boot, right? It's, it's also dealing with these, these high concepts. It's highly symbolic. How do you translate that there? Um, so I, so you know, it's understandable that this is going to be painstaking work, but you know, I think the effort itself uh, will be a great contribution. You know, you know. And I think there's even other studies being produced now on Kusheri's uh, Lataif. Um, but you know, as I said, I think I think this book is really kind of the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, you've uh, you've done a great job, Martin. Um, and since we know you're not going to be translating this year yourself, maybe you could tell us a little bit about some of the things you are working on. Sure. Uh, there's actually, I guess, three things uh, that I've been kind of dabbling with. I'm, I'm doing, oh, I'm trying to work on a translation of the Kitab Miraj. I think it's, it's, a, it's a worthwhile project just because it, it approaches the issue of the heavenly ascension from so many different angles, right? Uh, and, and from the view of, uh, I think, of a very important, interesting scholar. I'm also trying to begin work on the tafsir of uh, one of Kusheri's teachers, Ibn Furuk, a prominent Ashri theologian who also has a very interesting life, right? He's poisoned on the road. That's how he dies uh, because he has to defend himself before, uh, before the court of a, of, of a Muslim ruler defending his, his positions. Um, and so part of his tafsir survives, and I want to do a similar treatment of that work. Uh, but the, the work I'm really focusing on now is actually a, a work of, of Muslim theology, trying to, to show kind of a, a macro view of what's going on uh, within the Islamic tradition in terms of theology and not just the conventional, uh, conventional theology we imagine, ilma kalam or akida, but that theology is being done in many other forms and try to bring it up to the contemporary period to see, well, what's happening now in a constructive manner. So these are kind of all on tap, but I think they all are born out of my interests uh, uh, in Kusheri and, and the research that I've done so far on him. Now, um, you also have this, this kind of ongoing project, Islamicana. Can you oh, tell us yes. a little bit about that? Sure. It's a, it's a website that uh, I maintain with my wife, Kieran Tahir. Um, it essentially is, is a means of documenting, you know, kind of all those, those interesting tidbits and anecdotes that you discover along the way. Um, and so it's a blend of, of, of things we've discovered about, you know, the heritage of Muslims in the U.S., right? Islam in America. It, it documents things we've discovered uh, on our journeys uh, to do research, right? There's, there's a quite a bit of information on, on uh, Islam in Turkey, Istanbul especially. Um, and it's also kind of a, a place to kind of uh, bring together the work that we're doing, right? So you can find uh, articles that I've published there. Uh, it's, 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 it's become my clearinghouse for all things interesting, but perhaps not long enough to be an article or publishable. Well, um, I've, been, I've been enjoying those too, so I hope you, you do keep that up. Um, I certainly will. Well, thanks, Martin. We appreciate your time, and uh, we certainly hope to to get you back for some of these future projects. Oh, thank you. It's been a, been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. That was my interview with Martin Wen about his book, Sufi Master and Quran Scholar, Abu Qasim al-Kusheri and the Latalaf al-Sharat, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2012. 